0: You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey, everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. Uh, many of you have heard Tony Dutzig before on our podcast. He's a senior policy analyst with the Frontier Group. Today I want to have him back on because he wrote a fascinating piece about subprime auto loans. Tony, welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast.
1: Thanks, Chuck. Thanks for having me back.
0: You and I are going to kind of wander through this because I, I think we're both on ground that uh, we know enough to be dangerous on, but but maybe not enough to be considered <laughs> experts on. But we have more questions than answers, right?
1: Yeah, no that that's that's absolutely right.
0: I want to start with the kind of remarkable statistic, and it was not maybe remarkable to you, but but to me it was this idea that ADT. The amount that people drive is really tied not only to unemployment and kind of the growth of the economy but also uh, tied loosely to credit conditions. Can you talk a little bit about that relationship
1: i I can talk a very little bit about it, which is to say that it's that it's rather unclear. What I can say is that there's been there's been growing attention in uh, to the link between the availability of auto credit and access to vehicles, so the ability to purchase vehicles on the market, um, you know when we think about the factors that go into whether uh, someone purchases a car or many people purchase cars, the things that we tend to think about uh, relate to the state of the economy. So do people have jobs, do people have income? are they able to afford vehicles? And all of that is is true and very important. But there's also this additional factor, which I think, um, you know, certainly, you know, if you think about the, the housing bubble and the conditions that led to that plays out in the car world as access to credit. We're starting to look into this question a few years ago. Uh, I found a very interesting working paper that was done by researchers at the Federal Reserve that essentially looked at this question of what is it that you know that triggered the downfall of the of the car market in and around the recession and you know what they had found was that Um, In addition to all of the sort of bread-and-butter economic factors that were playing into people's decision-making at that point in time, that credit availability, so simply the inability to get a loan to buy a car, was was a major factor and, in fact, was as big a factor – credit market conditions were as big a factor as employment and income – How that plays into trends and how much people are driving, I think, is a point that is still very unclear. One of the reasons that we started looking into this in addition to coming across this research was – um, you know, the very sharp spike in vehicle travel that started in, you know, really in late 2014, but accelerated in 2015, which a lot of folks, including ourselves, have chalked up in large degree to gas prices in the economy. But it was also, you know, at roughly the same time that, you know, this concern about subprime auto lending really started to get rolling. So I think we don't really know very much at all about. The connection between credit conditions and people's ability to buy vehicles and how much that's affecting overall trends in driving. But we definitely, you know, I think there's reason, there's reason to ask the question of how those things relate. And, um, you know, it's worth, it's worth talking about and thinking about.
0: At the beginning of this paper, you had a number 1.2, 1. 1.2 1. 2 vehicles for each licensed driver. And I have to say, if you would have asked me, just don't show me that number, just ask me. For every licensed driver in the U.S., how many vehicles are there? And this may may point to my worldview, but I would have said 0.8, 0.85, something below one. You know, in other words, there's going to be families where you're going to have, you know, two people sharing a car, or you're going to have kids that have licenses that don't have cars. There's 20% more cars than licensed drivers in this country, and that number's actually then started to go up. In the last few years again, after reaching a high over a decade ago, do I, do I have that right?
1: You do have that right. I think that statistic can, and and we flag this in in the blog post that I think is the jumping off point for this conversation. We we flag that that statistic I think can be easily misinterpreted. So when we talk about 1.2 vehicles per licensed driver, that includes commercial vehicles and includes taxis and includes Ubers and includes you know, all manner of vehicles that are out there that are um, you know not necessarily personal household vehicles. That being said. It's still a pretty striking number. It's when,
0: astounding. When you think
1: about yeah.
0: It. <laughs> <laughs> That's astounding. Yeah. No, it's, it's incredible. The number peaked in 2001 and then kind of hovered and then, and then dipped during the recession. Uh, but now in the last few years, it started to spike up again. Is this kind of tied into this notion of now, you know, we've made credit more available. Uh, we're doing more subprime lending. And so it's it's simply easier to get into a car.
1: Well, I think that that is that is very much true. Uh we had done a a blog post uh, a few a couple of years ago when we first started exploring this topic that uh, I can't remember if it was the title of the blog post or just the line that we that we used within it that it's never been cheaper to get into an expensive car. What we meant by that was that the credit market conditions that have prevailed in the last few years have enabled a very large number of people to quote unquote afford vehicles that otherwise would have been out of their financial reach if we had if we were dealing with lending conditions that were similar to what they would have been 10 or fifteen years ago so there's a few factors that play into that so one factor that plays into it is just that interest rates have been very low which you know is obviously a huge factor the second thing that plays into it is that lenders have become increasingly willing to lend people money for cars over longer periods of time so you know when i was when I was growing up your traditional car loan was about a four-year loan, you know, four or five years. Uh, now, many more people are taking out loans that are five, six, seven years long on new cars.
0: I saw seven-year loan the other day, and it just floored me.
1: Seven yeah, years. It, yeah, no, it's it's true, and there are some who who I think perhaps legitimately will note the fact that that cars last longer than they used to. So, one of the things that I think is a factor that will be interesting to see how it plays out over the next couple of years is the fact that cars you know are increasingly of higher quality they 're more durable they last longer. so you might think well if i 'm going to be in this car for for ten eleven years that a seven year auto loan makes some amount of sense. The challenge is that it Lengthens the, potentially lengthens the amount of time that someone has a car that they owe more in loans on than the car is actually worth at trade-in. So my, my concern I think is that that's going to play out in, in some fairly wacky ways in, in terms of how people deal with those decisions over the next few years. But, but the bottom line is that if you have low interest rates, if you're paying off over a longer period of time, and if used car prices are high, which they have been over the last number of years, then it's possible for lenders to offer a much lower – all of those things combined – when you're leasing a car enables you to offer a really attractive lease payment. And if you're buying a car enables you to have a lower payment, you're still paying more over time because you're paying more in interest with a longer loan period. But, but the actual monthly payment is lower. And for many consumers, when they're thinking about, do I get into a car and do I buy this car? Do I not buy this car? The monthly payment is the thing that they're thinking about. They're not necessarily thinking about the cumulative payments over time.
0: Exactly. I remember, you know, my wife bought a car Like five, five, six years ago, and it it was all about the interest rate and the payment. This would have been 2011, 2012. So we're after, you know, the depths. We plumbed the depths of the recession, but you know, kind of in the early phase of this. And yeah, the hook, I mean, we went in, she knew what car she wanted. She knew the type, all that. But the, the hook was the, yeah, here's like, I think we even got zero interest for a while, but they wanted us to take a six year loan. And I think we actually wound up uh, doing something like that just because the interest rate was ridiculously low. You know, like, why not? And and I figured, like, you know, how does this make any sense? Because I felt like the car was, you know, fairly priced and all that. Is this all part of the national, I don't want to sound conspiratorial, but the, you know, the Federal Reserve push to loosen credit and, you know, kind of loosen up things and, and kind of keep the economy going as a response to the recession?
1: you're getting a little bit beyond my field of expertise sure. and field of concern I, I would say that you know certainly coming out of the recession the the Federal Reserve did through interest rate policy try to find a variety of ways in which to spark the economy and you know clearly if you are uh if you are lowering interest rates that makes all sorts of durable goods purchases that you might borrow for look a heck of a lot more attractive and so I think one of the one of the concerns. When you look at the auto market is that to the extent that those policies have incentivized people to buy vehicles now that they might otherwise have waited two or three years to buy and to have taken out a fair amount of debt on that Is not something necessarily that the collateral of a vehicle supports their ability to take out that debt, that, you know, you might have repercussions in the next few years of people not being able to make vehicle purchases that otherwise they would have made. So, you know, essentially there's a concern, I think, that the consumption has been pulled forward by those policies a little bit and, um, you know, might result in, you know, what I think the auto industry anticipates as being a slackening of sales over the next few years.
0: A hangover in a sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I remember with the cash for clunkers thing, we had this debate too. The idea was, Hey, we're, we're in a really bad fix. The auto companies are imploding. Uh, let's, you know, do this thing and essentially pull the demand forward and, you know, keep things from bottoming out now with the understanding that, you know, if people are buying more durable cars that last longer and they're purchasing it earlier than they otherwise would, that means at some point in the future, you're going to have less demand, you know, but the urgency is there now. So let's deal with, with now and we'll worry about that later. There's a part of me that sees the whole subprime thing essentially as a way to entice people to to bring forward even more purchases that they otherwise wouldn't make. Is that kind of what you're sensing too?
1: Well, it's, it's interesting that you bring up cash for clunkers because I think there's there's a couple of things that are going on here. So one of them is that, Cash for clunkers took old cars off the road, so it it spurred demand for new vehicles, but it also wiped a bunch of older vehicles off the road at the same time.
0: Those were crushed. like They didn't go back on the market as used cars. I don't think they did.
1: I'm not 100% certain of that, but I, I believe that that's true. One of the really curious things of the last couple of years, at least of 2015, we haven't seen final 2016 data, is that... There's been this huge net flood of vehicles into the market. So um, we had looked at some statistics and I've I've been working on a blog post on this. I hope I can find them while we're actually talking. That, you know, last year light duty vehicle sales were north of 17 million, so it was an all-time good year. In 2015, Scrappage, so the removal of old vehicles off the road, was running at around 11 million. So what you had happen was this very strange circumstance in which new vehicle sales are at an all-time high and yet the average vehicle on the road got older. Which suggests to me that we have been that number that you talked about at the very beginning of the 1.2, that we have been, you know, we've just been putting a lot of cars in a lot of people's hands over the last couple of years. And and a lot of those folks who have those vehicles now are, are folks who were not going to be in a position to buy them during the course of the recession, either because they didn't have income or they didn't have access to credit. And so you have this really difficult and challenging situation where, you know, and and, and you and I, I know, have talked about this before, that we've created a situation and created a transportation and land use system in this country where many folks feel the need to own a vehicle it in order to, to be have able it. to participate in, yeah. yeah, in order to be able to participate in daily economic life and to take their kids to And to do the things that they need to do every day. And, you know, when those people are are people who are not of uh, not of economic means, if they are folks who, you know, really legitimately can't afford to own a car, then you have this sort of ping pong effect where, you know, the sub you get the subprime market going to provide access to something that people very desperately need. You have a subprime tools that are being used in that market to you know recover vehicles that people may not be able to make payments on you have all sorts of very you know shady dealers who show up on the scene you know to provide access to this product what ends up happening at the end of the day is that it does challenge the financial viability of those households and it also raises some challenges for the financial system too so i think that my answer might have kind of taken off on a little bit of a different tangent than than what you were asking but
0: I feel like we're getting, and I know John Oliver did the piece that was really very good that kind of talked about how we're preying on people really through this system. And you, you have, like you say, you have a captive audience. I mean, people in most of America need a car to get to work and to, to function. I mean, it's, it's kind of the ante to participate today in most places. I remember back in, in 2000, I went to graduate school and my wife and I were looking for an apartment at the time, we, we still do, but we had two big white snow dogs. They're Samoyeds. They're not exactly like household pets. And every place we were looking for, nobody, I mean, they were going to charge us obscene amounts for these dogs, and it just was a bad deal. And uh, this realtor we were talking to said, well, you guys should actually look to buy. Buying's not bad right now. Well, <laughs> I was quitting my job, right, to go to graduate school. I had a half-time assistantship at graduate school, was going to pay me like twelve dollars an hour, and we had a mortgage already on our, you know, our existing house, which we were thinking we were going to rent, but we weren't exactly sure. We go into, okay, we'll entertain this. We went and looked at a townhouse, and I thought, you know, there's no way we're going to be able to afford this thing. And when we got in, they asked us some questions, and they said, well, let, let me let's go show you some houses in your price range. And they started showing us these $400,000 homes, uh, (laughs) which was like double the house I had. And I thought, this is is insane. Something's wrong here. When we sold it a few years later, the couple that bought it, in order to purchase the house, they had a first mortgage, a second mortgage, and a third mortgage. And they paid like $2,000 more than what we were asking for and we found out when we got to the closing that the $2000 extra was a bonus to their realtor and their realtor actually turned around and cut them a check so they could make the first two payments <laughs> this was two, this was 2004 and in my mind like there's just warning bells going off like this makes no sense i know people today i know two people today who actually have leased cars that are sitting in their driveway because they're over the mileage amount and they still have time left before their lease is done, so they've actually gone out and purchased another car uh, and are essentially making two car payments. To me, it feels frothy in the same way that two thousand and four felt frothy
1: to me. You can definitely start to see to see signs of that you know if you're if you're looking for signs of froth, basically right about now. What seems to be happening in the new car market, and again, I would preface for your listeners that my interest in this is more in the in the line of a hobby than as a um, than as a full time vocation to me but but I pay attention to it because I think that it it does to the extent that the work that I do looks at transit transportation to the extent that we look a lot at Potential transitions in how we do mobility. So whether it's moving towards shared mobility and shared vehicles or walking or biking or land use or any of these things, you know, this stuff, this stuff is important and it, and it intersects with all of that. So with a little bit of preface that this is not something that I've spent my entire life focusing on, you know, what, what you're seeing, I think, right now in the new car market is that Uh, A few things are kicking into gear that are reversing many of the trends that we just talked about. So the thing that enables the the leased vehicle to be sitting in your friend's driveway. One of them is that because we have put so many more vehicles on the road uh, and because so many people have leased vehicles, because the deal has been so good over the last few years to lease a vehicle, you have this surge of relatively inexpensive but fairly high-priced used cars that are coming onto the market that is causing used car prices to fall when used car prices fall the trade-in value that you get on your new vehicle becomes less attractive and it becomes harder for dealers and lenders to to finance leases in a way that's attractive to folks so you're starting to see from the automakers a few things that are happening at the same time one of them is that sales are going down of new vehicles the second thing that's happening is that incentives are going up. So they're actually giving away, you know, more money to encourage people to take vehicles on their lots than they have since the recession. And at the same time, um inventory for some of the inven- for the for some of the automakers of new cars is growing. So I think you have, you know, the evidence of the froth in the market is that you start to have something that looks like a glut of cars—cars cars that are sitting in dealer lots, cars that are still being manufactured by the by the manufacturers, and also on used car lots. There's to tell you a little bit of an anecdote, and I almost hesitate to share this because I don't I don't really know that it's um, you know proof of anything. But I bike to work a lot, and I've been biking by our local Toyota dealer, and I've noticed over the last couple of months. That it used to be that they stored all of their cars on their lot at their facility, but now I'm noticing that there's a vacant lot across the street where there are a bunch of cars, and there's a, a former restaurant lot down the street that has even more cars. So there's, you know, it's almost like they're they're pouring out of of their lot and into adjacent properties wherever they can store cars, and none of that is particularly sustainable, I don't think going forward
0: i have noted the same exact thing here in central minnesota we have the same thing we have an auto dealership uh that i go by when i take the girls to dance and their overflow lot across the street is always empty the last few months the last six months really it's overflowing now it's packed full of cars and it's not the time of year to be packed full of cars you know right
1: Exactly, because pretty soon they're going to be trying to get rid of those vehicles in order to turn over the stock for the next model year. Right,
0: right. I want to ask a little bit about the implications of this, because I've seen this kind of rumbling around for months, maybe a year now. The people that push back on it say, hey, this this isn't as big a deal. You know, don't worry about it. You know, subprime housing was a big deal, but – you know when people defaulted on their home mortgages it took a year to get them out of the house you default on your car and the repo man shows up and uh you know it gets taken care of in an afternoon and we can make the bank's whole pretty quick and so there's there's not a big deal here don't worry about it that changes though when there's a glut of cars right
1: yeah it it changes quite a lot and and i think it's already beginning to change that you're you're starting to see some indication from some prime lenders that they're not recovering the value on the vehicles that they're repossessing that they had in years past or that they're anticipating. This whole system in the subprime world of offering a relatively high interest loan to a relatively high credit risk and being able to repossess it quickly and resell it to the next person is uh which I think the John Oliver piece that that you described and which we linked to in our blog post on this and which i would definitely encourage folks to watch for entertainment value if nothing else <laughs> but,
0: it was <laughs> um, it was hilarious but, but it was ridiculously eye-opening too i mean oh my yeah, gosh yeah it was yeah.
1: it's you you read some of these stories and you um you watch that piece and kind of <laughs> you sit back in 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 demused horror a lot of the time but at, but at any rate you know th- this whole system actually works decently well for lenders and dealers so long as vehicles are holding their value. If it comes to the point where a dealer is repossessing, in a lot of cases, the, the industry, the segment of the industry that John Oliver talked about is the um, the buy here, pay here dealers. So essentially folks who you know sell and finance vehicles right on the same lot. But essentially, if you get to the point where those vehicles are being repossessed and they're being resold at a lower value. Then you begin to get into issues, certainly for the lenders, which I think is already starting to happen to some degree. You know, For consumers, I think the implications for the folks who are in the subprime market, I don't really have a clear idea of, because on one hand, you might say, that folks are going to be lacking access to credit and therefore not able to borrow for vehicles, which I think will be, you know, as as banks and other lenders are beginning to tighten their credit standards, which is already happening, but could continue to happen even more in the months and years ahead, that will obviously shut off credit. But there's also going to be a flood of a lot of really cheap, pretty good used cars out there. <laughs> so I suspect that for some folks who Who would be in the used car market and would be in the subprime market that there will be opportunities to have access to vehicles that perhaps they might not have previously. So how all of that shakes out I think is still very much unclear to me. I haven't really seen much in the way of analysis that that documents or or suggests what what's likely to happen there and i think it's important not to not to jump to to too broad of conclusions about about what that's likely to look like you had one
0: other stat in that paper that struck me and i i don't have any context for this one except for my own it's the 137 uh loan to value ratio i've been fortunate enough that the only two cars i've owned as an adult have been brand new cars I grew up on a farm in a poor family. and We always had junky cars and they always broke mm-hmm. when you needed them. Right. And I, mm-hmm. I just said, like, I'm not going to have a, a junky car. I'm going to have a car that works. So I, I bought a brand new car out of college. And then uh, in 2004, so like nine years later, I bought a, another brand new car. I still have that one. So I've driven it, you know, almost 13 years now. It's been mine. Like I've taken care of it and all that. I know when I drove that thing off the lot, it dropped $2,000 in value right there. And so my my loan to value ratio was something over 100%. But 137% being the average, and that's not even like the subprime average, that's the average average for used, not for new. That astounded me because that just tells me right there that, you know, you have – if you buy a used car and you even get like a three-year or four-year loan – Half of that loan, or a third of that loan at least, you're going to be underwater for sure. Even if you don't drive it, you know <laughs> that doesn't seem to work in any world to me.
1: Right. Well, and it doesn't. It it doesn't make intuitive sense. Really, there was another paper that I had seen when when we were doing our investigation in into this that was. Dated from the early 2000s, I was going to talk about it a little bit in our blog post, and it wound up on the cutting room floor, but um, but it's an interesting an interesting piece of work. And when they were doing their analysis, one of the things that they specified was that that the amount of the loan could not exceed the value of the car. And this was back in the early 2000s, and what I gleaned from that was that the researchers had you know it's sort of not thought that that was something that was possible <laughs> for <Right. laughs> for there to be a loan to value ratio that right. you know that that vastly exceeded one hundred percent and yet yet it 's something that happens all the time and, and i 've got yeah. personal experience with this because my um my stepfather passed away a number of years ago this was back in in two thousand and nine you know and he had sort of the the opposite experience, I think, of you growing up, Chuck, which was that, you know, he was a car guy. He raced stock cars in the 60s and, um, you know, always very much wanted to have have a new car. You know, he had to have a new car every every three or four years. And he continued this well beyond his ability to sustain it financially. And so, you know, his last vehicle, which was the vehicle that he had when he passed away, was in this very same situation of the loan to value ratio uh you know he had he had rolled over uh the outstanding balance of a previous car loan onto the loan for this car and it was by the time that that he passed away and that we had to sell it the the car was worth dramatically less i think it was worth uh it was worth about seven thousand dollars and he still owed about thirteen thousand dollars on loan. and right. you know for me as the executor of the will i could just you know say here you go here are the keys right <laughs> and, right and have at it without my without my credit rating being, right. being at risk but he would not have been in that same situation and i think you know for folks a, a, at some point uh, you know this has been called and i 'm forgetting exactly who had labeled it this way. It had been called the I think it was a Morgan Stanley analysis had labeled it the trade and treadmill but at at a certain point, you do wonder if there is some sort of upper limit on what that loan to value ratio can be so how much how much phantom car are lenders willing to finance going forward, and you know if you do have this situation where you have folks who are in You know, relatively long term, five year, six year, seven year financial commitments on their cars. If those vehicles turn out not to be worth at year two or year three or year four what people had anticipated that they would be, how does that affect the financial decisions that they make if they're under financial stress? How does that affect, you know, their willingness to purchase new vehicles three or four or five years down the line? You know, there are a whole set of implications that I think tumble. Tumble atop of one another that um, you know I certainly haven't had the time to dig into and 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 I don't know you know have have really been fully explored by people who pay attention to this stuff.
0: I want to ask you one last question, and I, I don't know as you are going to know the answer, but with the subprime market uh, for housing, I know a lot of it originated at the local level. There were everything from the appraisers to the real estate agents. To the originators and local banks, all kind of part of this, you know, chain of people, none of who was really responsible for anything, and there was a moral hazard created by the fact that the paper got shoved off onto the secondary market where it was securitized and and sold off, and and basically, the people who were taking the risk were so far divorced from the people who were, in a sense, vetting the risk uh, that you know we wound up in this really crazy situation. With auto loans, it does seem like you've got the vendor finance ones, and they're charging really high interest rates, and, and there's some predatory things there. But are most auto loans still held by local banks, or are, is this something that, too, is getting securitized, and you know we have that kind of hazard with the people taking on the risk being very different from the people who are vetting it?
1: Yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of very similar dynamics at play. So, you know, certainly auto, auto loan backed securities exist. Uh, they are increasingly important. And I think one of the dynamics that some observers of this situation have been concerned about is that you have a very similar set of incentives that are, that are put in place that essentially you have, you have folks who are investors who are seeking yield so they're seeking good returns at a time when interest rates are relatively low who are seeking investments you can deliver that and you know autoback securities have have tended to do you know they did Pretty decently well during the recession and, and, and afterwards, and so you have this bidding up of the market of people who who want to invest in this kind of lending when the cupboard may be getting to be fairly bare in terms of the people who are actually willing to do the borrowing and capable of paying it back in some ways is is similar to the housing market. I think that one of the one of the slight differences is that you know certainly it, it, it banks and others are beginning to pull back from this market a little bit i think that they understand or are coming to understand what some of the issues are i was um, reading a story in bloomberg today that was talking about a number of lenders who had who had retained a firm to identify essentially what percentage of new car loan applications are beset by fraud. And that's something that I think was not really part of the conversation until well after the housing bubble began to burst. Now, I mean, you could argue that the that the auto bubble has, has already started to burst over the last few months, but there's, I think, some greater awareness among the more reputable and, and sane aspects of the financial industry as to what's going on here. One of the issues I think going forward will be, um, you know, to what extent, you know, one of the things that I think has been challenging about this particular situation is that you've had new entrants to the market who are not necessarily, you know, who are a little bit more fly by night, a little bit more willing to take on risk who then are entering into the subprime market in a big way. And the extent to which I think they'll continue to be able to do so is something that's, that's up for question. But, but I think you're right about, you know, this question of the divorcing of of risk from investment. And I I think there are a lot of things that we don't know about how that, how that has happened, but there are definitely some, you know, if not similarities, at least echoes of the housing crash that are starting to play out in this market.
0: I just remember buying my first car in, in high school and sitting down with the banker and, you know, knowing that, you know, this guy knew my dad, he knew my grandpa, If I didn't make good on this loan, not only did this guy know where I live and was going to kick my butt, but I wasn't never going to get a loan for anything ever again. And you contrast that with, you know, when I, the story I told about going to purchase the second home when I was in grad school with no income, it's a very strange world to me that I have trouble, I have trouble grasping. And I, I'm 43, I'm too young to be like the curmudgeon, you know, uh, (laughs) y yeah this 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 feels like a little bit you know, boy, back in the day it made sense, and this doesn't make sense to me
1: it It is unsettling, and I think part of the reason that we wrote that blog post and and have written before on this issue is less about the kinds of things that we pay a lot of attention to all the time, but the fact that I think many people who who look at trends in transportation and land use. One of the themes over the last couple of years has been that we're going back to whatever was the case in the 2000s or or previous to that. That you know, we're going to see a resurgence of sprawl, we're going to see everybody's driving again and so on and so forth. And and to some degree that's that is happening, but what we don't tend to look at are the underlying forces that drive what's happening. And I think over the last couple of years it's certainly the case that the economy and gas prices and all of these things are helping to drive consumers' decisions. but consumers can make this question of what people are being incentivized to do with their money <laughs> through this system is um is something that it plays into all of these decisions, and we saw how that happened in the housing bubble i mean you can you can say that people had had demand for all of those really Big McMansions and that were very expensive, but it was, it was demand that was never going to be satisfied if it weren't for the fact that there was someone who was willing to throw money at people to go out and do this thing. And I think it pops up, it pops up in the housing market. I think it pops up in the auto market. It certainly pops up among those of us who pay attention to the innovative mobility world where, you know, you have, services like Lyft and Uber that are, you know, coasting on, you know, huge amounts of venture capital investment, but we don't know for many of these services, whether they actually are fundamentally sound or viable as businesses over the long run. And yet we have to figure out how we react to them and how we understand how they play into people's decisions today. So it is, I, I share your sense of being very unsettled by it, but I think, you know, for all of us who, care about and want to pay attention to the decisions that people are making, the decisions that communities are making, the decisions that individuals are making in this, in this set of issues. You know, we at least have to acknowledge and surface the fact that those decisions are not necessarily being driven entirely by market fundamentals or entirely by individual supply and demand, but that there, there are these other Other factors and other decision makers that are, that are coming into play and until we can understand and, and surface that and begin to talk about it, we're going to continue to misinterpret what's happening in the world in ways that I think could be quite dangerous. So that's kind of how we got, how we got into it and the set of questions that we really wanted to start asking. And I think you're right that we, we need to do a lot of work to think through you know, to understand how that, how all of that works and to get to the point where we go beyond being unsettled by it and can begin to react to it.
0: On a related note, I'm going to send you a picture. My girls play softball and the, one of the practice fields that we play in next to the outfield is an old industrial site. It used to be the paper mill. My, my dad worked there. My grandpa worked there. The paper mill It's closed now, but they've taken the grounds and they're using it to store, uh, The recalled Volkswagens, uh, the ones that were, <laughs> yeah. So there's this, there's this sea of cars and they're all brand new. They all look beautiful. They're gorgeous. Um, But they're just sitting there waiting for people to figure out what to do. And nobody knows how long they're going to be there. And it's eerie. It's really weird. So I'm going to take a photo and I'm going to send it to you so you can see it. This is what I, oh my gosh, I go by this all the time with my kids. So.
1: Yeah, well, you know, that's a, that's a monument to really bad decision making <laughs> on the part of, you know, I mean, we've done work in the auto emissions field for, for a while and, you know, just the, the, the ability to think that you can get away with something that's fundamentally, you know, fundamentally unsustainable and wrong and, and that's the result. You get a bunch of, uh, of unused Volkswagens sitting in, an old paper mill in Minnesota. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, I would love to see the, I'll send you to the, see fo- the photo. It, it'll kill you. Yeah.
0: You'll be. So next time you have a hobby, let me know. I want to chat with you
1: again. <laughs> and, I, you know, I think we're going to continue to try to follow this as, as much as we can. But I think really, and this is something that I think speaks to the work that you and the work that strong towns do is, you know, always asking the next question and the question that is underlying what you're seeing at the surface and when you see something at the surface that seems like it doesn't make sense that it's important to dive into it a little bit more. So, you know, as analysts, I think it behooves us all to be looking for the places where, you know, there are those things that are h- hanging on beneath the surface that are that are impacting what we're seeing and how things are how things are happening in our communities.
0: Totally agree. Tony, you're a good friend. Thanks, man. I love chatting with you.
1: Yeah. Thank uh, you, Chuck. Always enjoy it.
0: Uh, let's do this again. Tony Dutzig, Senior Policy Analyst with the Frontier Group. Thanks, everybody, for listening and keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care. We need your help. If you think the Strong Towns message is important, don't keep it to yourself, pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org times require what drastic measures? yes who we'll said that they know that america's one big pothole right now bill 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 that's a start
1: chuck marone this has been fascinating
0: who made
1: the city I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit Agenda 21. Yeah.